Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me, and I mean in the studio, the actual studio, is uh, Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you. I'm just so happy to be here. I rode here this morning. I'm wearing proper shoes. It's like the first time in a year that I've been speaking to you while wearing shoes. So thanks for having me. Yep. Um, And Dr. Laura, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Super excited to be here too. But Lyndon, we're still both in active wear, left over from the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah. So we still look like we're part of the pandemic. But it's so great to be in the studio and actually see you guys. And this disinfectant smells really good. (laughs) It's disgusting. I like it. Getting a little high off it over here. I've been I've been smelling this crap for the last fourteen months. But you guys have been you never mentioned it. it. You could hear it though. You You could hear that. that. You could be smelling it. Yeah. I I feel COVID safe with this amount of disinfectant. (laughs) That's disturbing. And we've got Stacey on the line. Good morning, Stacey. Hi, Dr. Shane. Hi, Lyndon and Laura. How are you? I can't see you, but I can hear you. Good morning. There we go. We're going to jump straight into some news, folks. We have a huge show for you today, though. We've got, um, well, one one guest who's an expat who's in the UK. Gemma will be on the line a little bit later. And then we're speaking with my good buddy, Kira Santa Maria, who will be broadcasting from LA, I believe, where she is at the moment. But that's going to be a lot of fun. But let's start off with some news. Dr. Laura, you look very excited and eager to uh I'm to always first. excited to share. Yeah. Okay. So, what do you got? Well, I um, read about a story um, which was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which tries to solve the paradox of how really large mammals, like blue whales, for example, seem to be resistant to cancer. Because when you think about cancer, this is a disease of our own cells. Every time our cells replicate, it's an opportunity for something to go wrong. So imagine if you're 200 times bigger, you have 200 more opportunities for things to go wrong, right? I mean... As a human, we have 30 trillion cells. It's not if, it's when genetic errors or mutations might be introduced. And of course, our immune system couldn't thwart them. But in general, your risk of cancer is associated with longer age, um, longer lifespans and a bigger body mass. Right. So back to the whale. This is, um, you know, a gigantic creature that can live for more than 200 years, right? So you should think it should be a near certainty that whales should be riddled with cancer, but they're not. And it's actually found that larger mammals such as, you know, hippos and elephants and whales seem to be more resistant to cancer than smaller animals like dogs and cats. Cancer is the n- number one leading cause of death in dogs and cats. So what's going on? And it's thought by researchers that as there's been an evolution for body size, there must have been an evolution of anti-cancer traits or genes that have evolved, you know, so these large mammals could live long enough to reproduce. So, um, and this is sort of, you know, this has been termed as Peto's paradox, which is, you know, how are these large animals resisting cancer? And cancer's been with us for a really long time. Did you know that cancer was, I mean, people think often that, you know, cancer's more prevalent now, but it's largely because we're living longer. Cancer was actually detected in our earliest ancestors. We've found it from fossils more than 1.7 million years ago. And just last year, I was very excited to learn this. I just learned this yesterday. 
Last year I missed it that um, cancer was diagnosed in dinosaur fossils. So 70 no. Yes, dinosaurs had cancer. How? How? They found a found a fossil of a fossilized leg bone of a Centosaurus that was 76 to 77 million years old and they detected osteosarcoma within it. So even dinosaurs had cancer. Wow. So there's been like this this evolution of cancer within kind mm. of, you know, creatures over time. So in this study um, the researchers set out to compare the genetic evolution of cancer genes in 15 different mammalian species um, over time, which includes cetaceans like the toothed and Berlin whales, and also humans. Now, we know a multitude of tumour suppressor genes, some you might have heard of, like BRCA1 or P53, and they looked at the genetic landscape of these genes over time. And what they found that is that the cetaceans had a 24 higher turnover rate of tumour suppressor genes compared to other mammals. Now, what this actually means is, uh, you know, the turnover rate, that's just the rate at which gains are gene, uh, gained, gained and lost over time. So it looks like there's been a positive selection, a natural selection of these tumour suppressor genes um, to sort of, um, you know, be enhanced in ability or you get more of them over time. In addition to this higher turnover rate of all the natural, um, sorry, of all the tumor suppressor genes that they looked at, they also found lots of duplications of certain genes. So there were more of them of genes associated with um, DNA damage and repair and longevity. So it's like a perfect sort of, you know, way of looking at how nature has evolved to cure cancer. So be it that, you know, you could have these really large, long-lived mammals who over-evolution, and whales have got bigger over time. To keep up with that, you've had this pressure where you've got more um, tumor suppressor genes and selections for better variants of tumor suppressing genes. So riddle me this, because something I don't quite understand here is that for me, evolution tends to stop after we procreate. So it doesn't, so, you know, one of the reasons why we end up getting a lot of things as humans is because we never evolved to deal with them because by once we're pro procreated, your genes don't count, right? Well, not much anyway. They do in a social sense, but beyond that, they don't count in terms of procreation. So at what point do whales stop procreating? Do they do they do it much later in their lives? And is that why they've developed some of this? Because otherwise, where's the advantage and how do you pass it on? Well, if you think about mice that, you know, live for, you know, a relatively much shorter time than something mm. like an elephant, you know, it sort of doesn't matter that they're incorporating lots of mutations because they'll spit out a lot of kin and very quickly. Yep. Whereas elephants, for example, generally only would have like one child over a long period of yep. time. So you've really got to, you know, keep up and, you know, considering they would do it later in life in comparison to something like a mouse. And don't forget this evolution has been across millions of years mm. Mm. Um, and they would get bigger and bigger over time. And, you know, there's been an increase in these genes over time and they have less young and they reproduce later yep. and i suppose they're already very very large animals when they reproduce yeah like at that point like they're not getting any bigger yeah um yeah they're already huge when they when they reproduce which is yeah did the study say anything about what that could mean for human cancer yeah so they're they're looking at this in a way of you know how's nature beat it and how can we use that information, you know, say what genes are important and so forth? How can we feed that back into, you know, nature's the best at it and they've had millions of mm. years to do it. We've only been researching cancer for, you know, a few hundred years. Um, you know, what can we learn from that? So um, that's the way they're looking at it. And I love the fun fact about dinosaurs having cancer. And I'm just yeah. going to give you one second fun fact just because it was fun, yeah. irrelevant fun. How do you age a blue whale? How do you age it? Yeah, how, if, if, is, if is you got... it, Well, because they don't have teeth, right? So... Mm. Oh, how do you figure out how old they are? I yeah. thought you were like, how do you stress them out and make them feel old? <laughs> you, check, you, check the, you check the rings in his trunk. 
Well, there's, there's actually rings in the rings in the earwax. In the earwax. So you yeah. actually can cut out the earwax, and you can see rings within it. I looked at pictures. It was freaking amazing. Very very cool stuff. Stacy, what have you got for us? All the way from some country town. Oh, well, I've got a um, a funny little uh, news piece that I stumbled across, um, and it's all about animals and their ability to self-control when it comes to food. So, um, Dr. Shane, do you think your cat Tilly would pass the marshmallow test? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> she, <laughs> if, if it's there, she'll eat it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, for our listeners, the marshmallow test was an experiment performed in the late 70s, which showed that self-control, so the ability to delay immediate gratification to achieve a, a reward at a later point, is associated with a higher cognitive performance. And so way back when researchers looked at this in children, it's quite a famous study, and they were offered, so like three or four-year-old um, kids, they were offered one marshmallow to eat immediately or two marshmallows to eat in 10 minutes' time if they managed to control their impulse to gobble the first. So about half of the kids um, took the first marshmallow and about half waited to receive um, two marshmallows. And what they showed was is that they were able to, um, kids that were able to delay gratification for longer tended to achieve higher scores in a range of academic testing. Mm. But anyway, what... Mm. Mm. Whether this holds true today is debatable. But um, this sort of behaviour has been shown in some animals. So apes uh, are pretty good at it, dogs, um, even our uh, beloved magpies. Um, and it's thought that it's driven by socio-ecological needs. So species that have to rely on cooperation to survive have a bit better at um, maintaining or exhibiting self-control. Um, whereas on, um, uh, on the other hand, a lot of other animals such as chickens and pigeons and some monkeys have very little self-control and an inability to learn. But this week, researchers published new work which demonstrated that the common cuttlefish can pass a marshmallow-like test. Oh, wow. And it was, <laughs> yeah, I know, bizarre. Um, and uh, compared to the elephant that's got, or the whale that's got 200-year-old um, lifespan, cuttlefish only have um, a year or two. But it was the first time that anyone was able to show um, this in invertebrates. So cuttlefish are like uh, cephalopod mollusks like uh, octopus and squid and what the researchers did they tested their ability for self-control by assessing whether they would be able to choose between a standard food item which was raw king prawn um, which sounds pretty good to me but that's their standard uh, food item and then their preferred food item which is live grass shrimp and they did this by allowing them to choose to eat either the, um, the prawn in an accessible perspex chamber or whether or not they could wait uh, until their preferred food choice would become available, which was also visible through a partitioned chamber. Um, and they had to assess also the cuttlefish's ability to sustain that delay and whether or not they could learn to associate that better reward with other type of stimuli, such as a coloured shape. Wow. Um, so, yeah, anyway, it's a very elaborate experiment for the dear old cuttlefish. Um, but remarkably, what they were able to find was that the Cuttlefish could demonstrate self-control and they were able to delay this gratification um, and maintain it for a, between one to two minutes, which is not too bad for a cuttlefish. My dog can't quite achieve that just yet. Um, <laughs> I can't, so I can't achieve that. Yeah, it's something for us to okay. think about when we're eating cuttlefish, you know? Like, these guys are smart. They're very smart. Yeah, I'll be yeah thinking that's that right. We, we, we don't need to wolf them down as quickly as we do. Um, but anyway, so this capacity to delay gratification may have evolved again, through this ecological sort of pressures in, in the environment. So apparently cuttlefish are quite often to ambush attacks when they're seeking out prey mm. in the wild. And so they often have to hide and um, undertake these prolonged periods of exploration and then they sort of remain stationary and camouflaged until it's safe to, to, mm. um, to forage for their prey. So, yeah, it was um, interesting. So this 
theory supports uh, this research supports that theory is that they can make better choices before acting on impulse. So, um, so there you go. You'll uh, you'll yep. have to keep working on on your catch. Yeah. Well, another reason to just admire the cuttlefish, though, is one of the most amazing creatures on the earth. I think yeah, so. Yeah. I didn't know that about them, but they are super super cool. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, you know that it always heartens me when I get to read some science that has involved the use of citizen science, citizen scientists or crowdsourcing, you know, whether it's people sharing their computer CPU so we can run supercomputer models to help look for extraterrestrial life or whether people are looking for birds in their backyard or hunting for endangered species in forests. You know, citizen science is, is an amazing way to conduct great science and also engage lots of people in in research. But a study this week was using citizen science to examine the impact of microdosing. Microdosing is something that I only learned about when I was reading this study. Maybe Mm -hmm. you three are more familiar with it than I am. Very familiar. Very familiar, Mm -hmm. are you, Dr. Shane? Yeah. The use of tiny little amounts of um, hallucinogenics, all sorts of things. All sorts of things. Yeah. About one-tenth of the amount that you would normally use on a regular trip um, to help improve cognition and creativity and focus and mindfulness and those kinds of things. Mm. This is something that was start, um, sort of gained a bit of popularity in Silicon Valley about 10 or so years ago and has just grown <laughs> and grown and grown. a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> has just grown and grown and grown since then. So it's, it is used a lot. Of course it's illegal and I'm not recommending anybody Because it sounds give like it you're selling it. Yeah. I yeah. know. And when I read it, I was I'm like, interested. Oh, no, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> not only is it illegal, oh, Laura, but... I just heard improved cognitive function. <laughs> Sometimes you need a little help. But it's also, there's not a lot of research that's been done on it. So this field is, is really um, in its early stages. So this study was led by researchers at Imperial College and what they did, and there's actually been a fair bit of news written up about this study during the week, but not about the the results, more about the method, because the way that they studied this was to use, what did they call it? It was a a self-blind methodology. So they put the call out for people who use microdosing and they said, can you get involved with this? They got about 2,000 people who were like, yeah, sure, I'll help you out with some science. And then they said, oh, you've got to provide your own drugs. And so most people dropped out. And snacks. (laughs) Yeah. So they had about 200 people in the end. And the paper's got this really complicated flowchart about how they got... The participants to they had to provide their own um, drugs, and then they were also they were sent a bunch of capsules. Oh, they were sent a bunch. I'm back in the studio, hitting the microphone. <laughs> Got that done. They were sent a bunch of capsules, and they would put the drugs in a little um, sort of capsule. And some of them would have drugs and some of them would have a placebo. So initially they were empty and then they realised that didn't work. So they put a bit of sugar in there. Or if you were using magic mushrooms, you would put non-hallucinogenic mm. mushrooms in there. Mm-hmm. And so then the participants had to put all the um, put the drugs in different envelopes. And then they were sent a QR code and they had to stick those QR codes on the envelopes. And then they had there was a random number generated that told them which envelopes to open on which weeks. So they were kind of... Yeah, they were blinding themselves to, to know whether they were taking the drugs or not taking the drugs, which, I don't know, it's, it's a really um, honest way. You really have to trust the participants, but it was a new way. It's the first real placebo, um, placebo-based trial that they've done that has been so much out in the field, out in the real world. Now, what did they find? That the... Um, placebo and the drugs pretty much had the same effect. 
There oh. was no statistically significant results. Mm. Um, there were people who could guess a little bit more accurately whether they were taking the placebos or whether they were taking the microdoses, but the results were that there wasn't any real significant difference. But I think this is a valuable next step in this field of research, and I think given it's involved citizen scientists, it will hopefully get a lot more get a lot of respect from the audience that it's trying yeah. to inform, basically. It sounds like they need more participants. Bigger yeah, study. maybe. Slightly higher microdosing. More <laughs> microdosing. Larger envelopes. But, it's, but it sounds like these people are microdosing for sequential weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, four weeks. Yeah. Four weeks they were doing people, it. People Twice a week. Jobs. All sorts of That's stuff. That's how they get their jobs done. <laughs> we have our first guest on the line now. All the way from the UK, we've got Dr. Gemma Gransbury, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Manchester. Hello, Gemma. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great I'm to... I'm sorry, it's, uh, what, quarter past 12 there? Just after midnight? Yeah, it's a little bit late, but hanging in there. <laughs> you seem pretty bright. Um, good good effort. I think the uh, the interesting thing for people to know, of course, is that you're an expat. You, you definitely don't have a British accent. And you're from Melbourne originally? I'm originally from Adelaide. Um, so I grew up there and did my um, bachelor's in science and honours degree in Adelaide. And then I moved to Melbourne for my PhD um, and uh, was there for about five years. And then I moved to Manchester in February last year, uh, which Good if you remember last year, things were looking bright and sunny and uh, didn't last that way for too long. But yeah. um, it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, to, um, move I, I bet. Yeah. Well, fantastic timing, February. Fantastic timing. Just means you can never come back, but, you know, eventually we'll get you back, I'm sure. You're, you're working on some really cool stuff, though, with regards to mag magnetic particles or, or molecules, I suppose, and their use in data storage. First of all, give us an idea of what these little magnetic particles are. I mean, everyone's familiar with sort of larger scale magnets, but what, what are you working with? So um, we call them single molecule magnets. So um, our single molecule magnets uh, usually have a metal iron um, at the centre. And then we have some um, molecules or fragments of molecules that are interacting around the metal iron. So these things that are interacting around the outside we call ligands. Um, and so and sometimes we'll have um, something in there to balance the charge. If um, So I, I, we call them counter ions to, to balance the charge. So, yeah, this is our single molecule magnet. And often we're dealing with them as um, a solid with lots of um, like a crystal that's got lots of molecules all packed in close together or we can dissolve them in solution as well. Yep. And so uh, my understanding is that with these magnets, you'd have sort of like essentially their little direction will give you like a one or zero in computer storage if you were set, set these up correctly. Is that right? Yeah. So um, in traditional magnets, um, we'd store as one or zero with a magnetic up or a magnetic down state. And our single molecule magnets have the same idea. So we, they've got a magnetic moment that we can direct a, in a spin up or a spin down state. And by applying a strong magnetic field, so um, that can be something like sort of three to seven Tesla, um, which is a very large magnetic field. If we think of the magnetic field of the Earth is only sort of 25 to 65 millitesla. Mm. Um, so if we apply the strong uh, magnetic field, we can align the molecules to be in that sort of spin up state. And then if we remove the magnetic field, we find that the molecules can stay um, in that state um, in the absence of a field. So this gives them sort of this bi-stability. They could be in a spin up or a spin down state, depending on the history of the sample. Yeah. And how do you stop them, you know, if we're jamming them all together into a small space, which is like we, what we always want to do with storage, how do you stop them from affecting each other? 
Um, it's a good question. And there's definitely some um, single molecule magnets that don't work um, when they're all packed in close together. Um, so in some of our best uh, molecules, we, we've got these large ligands that help separate um, molecules mm. from each other. Um, and so if they're like kind of one nanometer apart, that's usually enough to stop uh, most interactions. Yep. Um, and if we dilute them in solution, then that can help separate them. Or if we dilute them um, in um, a, a matrix that's made up of the same molecules, but with a different metal ion in there that's not magnetic, that's another way to yeah. separate them out. It's interesting when we talk about some of the environments required for these, because in some of the information you sent through to us, um, one of the things I found fascinating was this 2016 temperature record for use of these, which was minus 250 degrees Celsius. People are freaking out here at the moment because the Pfizer vaccine needs to be shipped around at minus 70. But minus 259 degrees Celsius, that is, um, that is super cold. How do you, I mean, that's hard to achieve. Yeah, it is. Um, so it's actually something we need to use um, liquid, or you need to use helium to get down to those temperatures or liquid helium. Um, which is a non-renewable resource. Mm. So it's not really a, a viable solution to be using these sort of technologies when they um, require that sort of cooling. Um, it's all fine in the lab when we want to test them on small amounts, but um, not for scaling up. So ideally, one day we want them to be working at room temperature or above room temperature. So um, we can actually keep these memory effects around um, to be able to use them. Uh, but this kind of the first step that we wanted to get to was um, at the temperature of liquid nitrogen. Because um, liquid nitrogen is uh, something that we can get on hand relatively easily. Um, it boils at minus 196 degrees Celsius. So it's still pretty cold, um, but it's something that is kind of like a first step to aim towards. Yeah. And, and there at Manchester, you guys managed to get a new record of two, minus 213. I hear it's so close to that 196, but yet so far. Um, well, it was definitely a huge leap forward. And um, by kind of understanding... Um, how it works um, for this molecule that's got this um, minus uh, uh, 213 degrees Celsius um, and gives us a stepping point to go further. So um, that molecule is so good because we've got a, a really large energy barrier between going from our spin up and to spin down states. So it's kind of like um, having two backyards uh, with kids in both backyards and there's a huge fence between them. So they can't go from one side to the other. But if you put a ladder over top of the fence, then if you put enough energy into the system, then the kids will be able to climb up the ladder and then back down the other side. And so if we increase the height of this, this barrier, it's going to require more and more um, energy into the system. So we can provide that energy as temperature. Um, we can also uh, get that energy from vibrations in our system. So um, this molecule is designed so that we've got a really high barrier and we've got really small amounts of vibrations. So um, the... The molecule is designed, it's kind of got a, um, a globe that's been squashed, like someone stepped on a globe, kind of like a, a mandarin shape. Um, and then it's got uh, sort of like bread sandwiched on either side of this mandarin. Mm. And in these, uh, these bread slices, we've got um, five membered rings, so five carbons attached together. And that's um, quite a sort of tight bond between these atoms, and they don't vibrate very much. Um, and there's nothing in this sort of equatorial region around the globe that can also introduce other vibrations. Mm. So we have so few vibrations in this molecule that it means it's hard for the molecule to get enough energy to climb over the barrier. And so we need higher and higher temperatures to be able yeah. to get it to work. 
Interesting. Yeah. Now, um, just before we let you go, I know these things are a long way off commercial sort of readiness and there's some big challenges there, but have you actually managed to record data into these molecules and read it off at any point, even in the lab? Has that happened even in a small sense? Um, yeah, there are systems where they're able to be put the molecules onto a surface and then sort of um, connect two leads to it and um, detect, um, I think it was a current going through mm. and be able to tell, get two different signals out depending if it was in a spin-up or a yeah. spin-down state. Yeah, uh, look, so it's it's great it's stuff. Great. I mean, I think people, you know, sometimes we all fail to appreciate when you get down to that scale, just how hard it is to keep things isolated from the external environment so that they actually work and they, they record the information we need and how difficult it is. Because you're on, almost on the quantum scale there. You're getting all sorts of interference, all sorts of problems. So Gemma, look, it's oh, been... It's definitely quantum, yeah. quantum is all what it's about. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Gemma, it's been great talking to you. Hope things continue to go well for you in the lab over there. And hopefully we'll get you back here in Australia at some stage, no doubt to visit friends and family. I'm sure it's been difficult being separated. But thanks so much for staying up late and for chatting to us on Einstein Agogo. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Three. Triple. Everybody, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane in the virtual studio, as we now call it. With me is Kara Santa Maria from Los Angeles. Good morning, Kara. Good to see you again. And good evening, my time. Yeah, good evening, your time. Is it <laughs> evening or afternoon? I don't. Uh, it's after. Well, it's four thirty, so ah, it's in between. It's lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. To, it's good to talk to you. It's been, it's been a few years since we've chatted. I think the last time we spoke, you were about to embark on a PhD. How's that going? Wow, that means it's been four years. Yeah, because I'm a fourth year now. You finished? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll take six for um, clinical psychology. Yep. And tell us about it. What what's uh, what what are you what are you looking into? So I am psychology is interesting because you can slice and dice it a million ways. But I am clinically focused, which means I see patients. But it's still a scholar practitioner model. A scholar practitioner model. So mm -hmm. it's um, also a PhD. I've got a dissertation to write, um, and I am oriented, quote unquote, in the existential space. Right. So at my school, you can focus on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is pretty much the most common now yep. because it's the one that insurance reimburses here in the right. United States. Yep. Um, you can also focus on psychodynamic, which is based on like Freudian principles, but much more modernized now. And then my school also offers an existential humanistic track, which mm. is a little bit more philosophically based. It's founded in what we think of as existential givens of existence. So these fundamental things that all human beings deal with were less about diagnosis and a little bit more about treating the whole person and understanding their place in a society that might be a little bit sick. Yeah. As opposed to pathologizing the person. Yeah. I mean, this this seems like a, a really sensible approach. I, I think, you know, psychology is one of those fields where there's been, you know, there's been a lot of controversy with regards to many of the research, research studies that have been published and their repeatability mm -hmm. and so forth. And I mean, I can imagine this would be an area which would be very difficult as well because everyone's experiences are different and the way they interact with their environment and their societies and so forth is, is just so varied, yeah? 
So true. And that's why most people actually kind of mark existential interventions as the least evidence-based. But what I often try to explain and what I've learned from digging deep into the literature and trying to understand what an existential intervention really does is that the reason it's the least evidence-based is because it's the least easy to study. Mm. So certain things lend themselves to scientific inquiry. We especially love what we think of as the gold standard of the, the randomized controlled trial. And that's usually used in drug studies, right? You give some people a drug, other people a placebo, and you see who gets the who gets better and who doesn't. But when it comes to things like therapeutic intervention, where there's so many variables and there's so many um, kind of like like not not placebo effects, but they're sort of what people think of as placebo effects, which are the the effects that aren't the specific ingredient effects, mm. like just talking to somebody, like just having somebody check in on you once a week. Um, people who go to the doctor and get no treatment still feel better simply yep. because they're going to the doctor once a week or once a month. And so much of that is involved in psychotherapy that, you know, uh, existential intervention is unique. And because of that, it's very hard to measure one person versus another person. When it comes to most studies that look at the efficacy of psychotherapeutic intervention, basically they're based on self-report. It's pretty subjective. Do I feel better or do I not? And what we find time and time again is that it almost doesn't matter what style of intervention you take in psychotherapy. If you have a good rapport with your therapist and you're doing the work, like you want to be there and you want to do the work, most people report that therapy helps. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating to me when you talk about this because it, it brings to my mind some of the, the real issues with the broader medical profession around the way it it fails. And, and we see sometimes some good examples of this in particular in pediatrics, but where the medical profession fails to use the connectivity with family and friends as part of treatment protocols and so forth, and, and, and as an information resource and a labour resource as well, where families are often so integrated in the care of individuals. But, you know, the sort of work you're sort of looking into here, I, I'm, I'm guessing, says that's so integral to how we're going to deal with this. And if we don't take that into account, this approach just doesn't work at all. Oh, absolutely. I mean, most psychologists follow what we call a biopsychosocial model, which is that, you know, mental illness or let's even say dis-ease in the psycho, in the existential world, we usually break the word disease into dis-ease. We don't think of it as like a diagnosis, but just an, a, a lack of fit with mm. where we are in the world. I'm dealing with something, it's causing my suffering. Let's get to the root of what's causing that suffering. And most dis-ease is broken up into those components. There's biological factors at play. I take an antidepressant every day. I know that there's something different about my brain and that antidepressant helps. But there's also psycho factors, so mental factors that are a little bit less tangible mm. and they're things that we don't have drugs for. And then there are social factors. And that that third leg is often, yeah, ignored when it comes to medical intervention. I'm personally working in a health psychology setting right now. So I see patients within an outpatient cancer ward at a very big hospital here in Los Angeles. And I work with patients all the way from first diagnosis to active treatment, sometimes post-treatment survivorship, and sometimes, unfortunately, through the death and dying process. And along the way, and the, the literature bears this out as well, people who have social support 
tend to have better psychological outcomes, regardless yep. of how severe their their um, diagnosis is or how poor their prognosis is. Yeah. Now, I, I remember way back when, when you were just starting on this new endeavor of yours, which we'll call an old endeavor now because four years old, but you <laughs> you and I, we, we talked a little bit about what it would be like for someone who, you know, and, and I say this, you know, in all seriousness, as a, as a master science communicator going back into the fold of universities and hospitals where... How can I put this nicely? Communication is not necessarily at the front of the queue um, in, in terms of skill sets, and and you know you were going back into that as someone who you know was a, a real master of this this capability. How have you found that? Because that is such a core to what you do and what you do well. Right. So, I mean, going back to school sucks. I'm going to say that outright. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Yep. When you've been out of academia for 12 years, like I had been, there is a massive learning curve when you go back to school and you have to like take tests again, you know, and yep. write papers again. So, of course, I had to get back into academic writing when I had been doing popular writing mm. for so long and square that circle. Luckily, in psychology, Yes, there's an expectation that your writing is going to be very academic, but there's also, I think, a more progressive social justice diversity stance within psychology, especially within my program. And there is an understanding of how to translate your work for a broader audience because you as an individual psychotherapist are translating your understanding for your patient and vice yep. versa. You're learning from your patient. That said, within the milieu of the hospital, it has been interesting. I have to say I'm very lucky that I work in a cancer center that has this amazing um, program built into it with psychology, psychiatry, social work, dietitians, and palliative care medicine that all support the on the onco side of the cancer center. And so it's really multidisciplinary, and there are uh, there's a diversity of voices that are all there to aid in patient wellness. And because of that, I think we're a little more forward thinking. But there's still those age old conflicts with the oncologist working to try and you know, um, treat the cancer and the rest of the practitioners really working to try and treat the person, knowing that certain cancers will not go away. We will always just be chasing them. And really what treatment offers many of these patients is more time. Yep. It yep. doesn't necessarily offer the hope of a cure. And so squaring that circle and changing the dynamic of how we talk to patients about cancer and about time and about death and dying and preparing for those processes, it's a, it's a long slog because we're very death denialistic in most of the Western world. Yeah. And that's actually a big part of my research. So uh, sorry to kind of take a left turn, but earlier we were talking about the difference between what we think of as classic mm. um, medical or scientific interventions and then what some people talk about as being kind of less capable of studying scientifically. And the cool thing is we have different tools for this type of investigation. So I've spent my whole life as a hardcore scientist, I was working as a neurobiologist for years before I went back to school. And then as a science communicator, I was kind of logical, positivist all the way, you know, a skeptical thinker, biomedical thinker, doing research with brain cells, quantitative research. And now I'm actually uh, em embarking on a qualitative dissertation, which is a totally different experience for me. I'm doing an, a phenomenological hermeneutic investigation, <laughs> which is like, Back to our philosophy basics, yeah. it's about what are the ways that we know? What yep. are different ways of knowing? One of those things is scientific, but another is asking 
individual people about their experience and drilling down into the qualitative stuff. You know, when we talk about a lot of scientific investigation, it's quantity. It's what do I see as similar across thousands of people? And when we talk about qualitative, it's quality. It's what do I see as unique across a handful of people, but way deeper into what they have to say. Mm. Yeah, look, it's it's such a it's such an interesting perspective, um, Kara, because I know, you know, you you know me, I'm a you know, trained as a hardcore physicist, you know, worked that way for 12 years. Uh, one of the most illuminating experiences I had was um, when I was post that career working with our Victorian College of the Arts and talking to all different people from that organization about what they called research and what they saw as research, mm -hmm. which from a physics perspective, I know most of my colleagues at the time would have just said that's not research at all. But actually, once I got to the point where I understood where they were coming from, it actually gave me a totally different perspective on the other work I was doing. And a really valuable perspective. In fact, I, you know, I always, I always say to people that I learned how to be a science not in the science faculty, but in the arts faculty, because that's where I did philosophy. <laughs> and, right. You know, that's how they, That's where I was taught what science was. And I think you, you, you've probably seen this um, through the pandemic, and then, you know, hopefully it hasn't frustrated you as, as much as it has me. But this idea of certain statements being what I would call non-scientific out of the mouths of scientists who I suspect never did a philosophy class in their life. Oh, yeah. And I think it's a problem that I see even from within the safe confines of the skeptic community that I work in, mm. right? Like, I work on a skeptic podcast. I speak at, at skeptic conferences. This is my world. I co-wrote a skeptic book. And yet I still see that within the skeptic community, some people are so what we would call in the philosophy world, uh, logical positivistic. They mm. have this, this stance that unless we can, you know, investigate it, interrogate it using the scientific method, it's almost not even relevant. Yep. And that's, I think, a, a real, a really sad way to look at the world, because there are certain things that you can't investigate scientifically as much as you'd like to try, because we don't know how to pull out all the variables. They're too complex, either that or our systems don't match them. Our models don't match them yet. Uh, maybe we'll get there. But knowing the limitations that we have on understanding simply the way the brain works or the way that the that mind comes from brain, the concept of consciousness. Once you really understand the neuroscience behind what we don't know, it becomes really um, understandable why psychology inquiry, anthropology inquiry, literary inquiry can't use the same tools as the classic scientific method. Yep. And the interesting thing, you mentioned your physics colleagues. I wonder how different their approach would be if they were experimental physicists versus theoretical physicists, because that's two different kinds of science. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. I mean, with the the theoretical guys, we just poked the food under the door and the stuff came out. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, was, it was a very, it was a very different mindset, but they, they often had a, a very different view of what was important and why. And in some of the, I remember a couple of them in particular for whom their work would never find practical application in their lifetime. And, and and they had to find meaning in what they were doing, even though there was that limitation right in front of them compared to others in the department who obviously were you know, making things that were physical that you could see and feel and touch. And there was a massive right. you know, discordance between those two, those two groups.
Yeah, sometimes you would actually see that the theoretical physicists, sometimes, not always, mm. but sometimes are more um, interested in the philosophical underpinnings of cosmology because it speaks a little bit more closely to not just the limitations that they have, but as you mentioned, how do we make meaning? And that kind of comes back to the core of what my existential stance is in clinical psychology. When I get a new patient and they ask me, you know, what are we going to be doing together? How does this work? Or I might ask them, what are your goals of therapy? And then I might explain my approach. It always comes down to these four givens of existence that were first um, articulated by Irvin Yalom, who's actually still alive today. Um, and he is sort of, in some ways, the father of existential psychology in America. So he took the European movement of existential psychology and sort of brought it to, to bear in America. And those four givens of existence are fear of death, something we all have to cope with mm -hmm. in our lives, isolation, loneliness, you know, that that lack of of human kind of connection that we all cope with at times in our lives, meaninglessness, or on the flip side of that, how do we make meaning? And then finally, freedom and responsibility. These like core givens that are, you know, at the foundation of what it means to be alive, we truly believe are at the root of a lot of what other people might call psychopathology, your yep. severe anxiety, your depression, even sometimes psych psychosis that really at their core, it's because we're grappling with these fundamental human givens that go way back to, you know, the things that Heidegger said about what he called thrownness. We were thrown into existence. None mm. of us consulted before yeah. we were born. None of us, you know, signed informed yep. consent before yep. we didn't we didn't check off the terms and conditions. And so we're just here and we have to come to terms with the fact that without our permission, now we're existing and we've got to make meaning out of this world. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a lot to bear. Look, we've covered off on existence, so I think we'll move on. <laughs> the 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 other thing I wanted to talk to you about briefly, because it's starting to hit the shores here in Australia, is you've already had both of your vaccinations for COVID, yes? Mm -hmm. yeah, how, how did that go? I mean, talk us through that, because I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of concern out there. A lot of it's been unnecessarily generated by news agencies and anti-vaxxers and so forth. But what was that experience like for yourself? Right. So, you know, there's kind of the experience of getting the vaccine and then there's the experience of the psych science communication around the vaccine, mm, yeah. which are two very different things. Um, getting the vaccine for me, I was lucky. Um, you know, I, I work in healthcare. I see patients yep. in a cancer center, many of whom were not eligible yet. So, of course, it was incumbent upon me to make sure that I wasn't uh, capable of, of getting sick and then making my patients sick. Um, still following all of the recommended guidance with PPE, though, because we still don't know if, if there's a chance to carry it, um, even if you don't yourself get sick. But so, you know, I I was in that first wave of people who were invited to get the vaccine. Um, I went. The shot is super easy. It's a tiny needle. You don't even feel it. It's very different mm. than most vaccines in that it's like the teeniest, tiniest jab. Later that night, though, I had the classic, like I was the unlucky one who had all the bad symptoms. So after the first shot, I had a really, really sore arm. That was it. But it was really yep. sore. Like I got punched in, in a boxing match yep. um, for days. I was dealing with that. And then I was fine. Second shot, I got all the classic like fever, chills, malaise, joint pain. Like I was brutally sick from the second shot. But it only lasted 12 hours for the most acute part and then a couple of days for some of the kind of fogginess to wear off. Um, I kept telling myself, 
it's still better than COVID, mm. and it is. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting thing that happens when you know cognitively that the reason you feel sick is because you're having a really robust immune response, but you're not actually fighting off an infection. You're yeah. fighting off like a, a fake out. And so it's a weird thing where you're like, I know I'm not sick, but I feel so yeah. sick. Yeah. Um, so you push through that. And the truth of the matter is, you know, the reason our bodies do this is because we have what we think of as a two-tiered response. We have the kind of direct or active response where our body is developing antibodies against the mRNA sequences that were, were injected into us. And then we have this secondary kind of vague response, which is our immune system mm. building up all these inflammatory factors and being like invader, invader. And that's a good thing. Not everybody gets that secondary response in a way that they can feel it. That's yeah. also okay. It doesn't mean that the vaccine's not working. Um, but regardless of how you feel, that's how our bodies work. Yep. And that's why we know then that if we get exposed to the COVID virus, we're much less likely to mount another response. Or I'm sorry, we do mount a response. We're yep. much less likely to get sick from it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, yeah, as, a, as a fellow science communicator, you, you know, I'm sure you would appreciate this. I was at the supermarket this morning and, and the person who served me at the checkout indicated to me that every year there were um, there were going to be talking, making up that there were new strains and that way they'd keep vaccinating us forever and make money. And uh, <laughs> as, as a science communicator, when you hear this from members of the public who have interaction with other members of the public, it, it's very it's very difficult. And I took the tack this morning of talking to her about long COVID and some of the those experiences people are having rather yeah. than just go the normal route. I mean, I mean you must, you, we've only got a few minutes left, but you must be experiencing this a lot as as a science communicator who's in the spotlight a bit and a lot and you know people asking for your for your thoughts yeah, and it runs a gamut, right? Like here in the United States, we're dealing with a massive wave of anti-science rhetoric that mm. was, of course, uh, promulgated by the actual previous president. So that's yep. something that's really hard to fight against yep. when it's the person in the highest position in the land who is spouting pseudoscience. So, of course, you've got the people who literally are like, COVID is a hoax. You have people who, you know, there are deathbed videos of people on ventilator or about to go onto ventilator saying COVID is a hoax. That's, you know, super depressing. And then you've got the people who are like, oh, you know, I think that I'm young and I'm, my immune system is going to be strong enough and it's not worth it. Or I don't trust that this vaccine went through the proper, um, you know, clinical trial. So it's every, the hesitancy runs the gamut. And so mm. I think first we have to know where this person's coming from. And of course, most of the places they're coming from are, are valid places of fear. And then we have to communicate by finding that common ground, just like yep. you talked about. If somebody is too disconnected from the disease, they may not be able to empathize with what it's like to have the disease. Maybe that's not quite the tack you take. Um, if somebody has somebody who recently passed away of COVID or somebody who, you know, knows somebody who's suffering from long COVID symptoms, that may be a better tack to take. Maybe people are needle phobic. So the Johnson and Johnson vaccine could be a good option for them because it's a single dose. Um, but it's, it, it is a tough thing. And the truth of the matter is unless enough people get vaccinated, we're never going to hit herd immunity. It may be the case that we do need a booster shot every year hmm. but we do that with the flu yeah and yeah. and you know that's fundamentally important to prevent thousands hundreds of thousands of deaths a year covid is like an order of magnitude more infectious and 
order of magnitude more deadly than the flu. So looking at it that way, it becomes imperative on us to continue to communicate this. Plus, I mean, I think for a lot of people, just appealing to going back to work and getting mm. back into society. Yeah. Normal life is a good tack to take. Until we have herd immunity, we're not going to yeah. be able to go back to normal life. We're going to see what's happening in Texas where they lift mask mandates, and I can almost mm, guarantee scary. more people are going to die, yep. and they're going to have to they're going to have to dial it back because they won't be able to deal with the massive ICU counts that they start carrying. Yeah. And we, look, it's we've been problem. lucky here in Melbourne and Australia because you know we've had a few outbreaks that have been relatively small, but the intense lockdowns have you know put a stop to mm-hmm. that. They of work. course, of course, our borders are closed, and you know we feel at the moment a lot of people, you know, are going back to normal lives, going back to work, and so forth. I'm sitting here in the studio, you know, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm indoors. There's some, you know, if, if a lot of my colleagues turn up, I, I have to, of course, but you know, there there are some limitations that are being slowly but surely lifted. But all of that is off the basis of our borders being, you know, firmly yeah. closed, and us dealing with many cases coming through the quarantine process of of those who do um, fly to Australia. Usually, you know, people coming back to Australia, and so we have this little window at the moment where things seem normal. But sooner or later, we will have to open up to the world, and that requires a vaccination program, a worldwide vaccination program, to be a success. Um, Absolutely, here in the states, you know, it's just simply not feasible to have our borders completely closed yeah. down. We're not a small island, and we have, you know, 350 million people, almost 350 million people here. We have a massive population, and and you think about China, you think about yeah. India, like places where there even more people you just have to think on a broader public health yep. scale once you get to that point i wish that we could have like walked down california and just yeah. you know kind yeah. of existed in this progressive bubble but really when you start to think about what that means then I, I take work. it back i don't wish we would have done that know, that would have been a huge bummer <laughs> well kara i'm gonna have to hand over to the team from edit that is waiting in the other studio uh to go to air in just a few moments but it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show again and i think um We'll do this. We'll try and do this again before four years go go past because uh, it's quite a while. Um, maybe maybe I hope so. in a in a you know shorter space of time. But um, good luck over there with your ongoing research. It's a fascinating area you're working in, and and glad to hear you're vaccinated and hopefully safe and and doing well. So thanks so much for the chat today. Thank you. Folks, um, that was Kara Santamaria from Los Angeles. She's the host of the podcast Talk Nerdy and an old friend of our show. We are going to have to hand over now to the team from Edith. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.